Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism with author Abba Solomon. He talks about Israel, American Jews, Gaza, and crimes against humanity. There is a, a real uh, resonance now between the right wing in America and Israel that is really overtaking Jewish American advocacy for Israel. And it's week five of the Poor People's Campaign, a focus on education, income, and housing. My employer barely pays me enough to pay rent and utilities, let alone with the medical expenses with my mother. That's why we need a movement to fight for change for the 140 million people living in poverty today. And thousands gather on Capitol Hill and across the country to say stop separating immigrant children from their parents. These stories and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance and alternative news from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Now, Washington, D.C. is at the center of war and peace this week as Donald Trump met with North Korea's Kim Jong-un and began a diplomatic discussion that could end 70 years of official war between the United States and the DPRK. But in the Horn of Africa, the United States is still supporting the Saudi-led attack on Yemen, which escalated this week to a bombardment of the sole remaining port where food and other supplies can reach the besieged citizenry. Analysts say that already more than 100,000 men, women, and children have died either due to direct bombing or from war-related sickness, a massive cholera outbreak, or malnutrition. To discuss these and other international issues further, I caught up with our political analyst, Gerald Horn, on Thursday, June 14th, while he was in D.C. Gerald, so I want to first get you to react to the summit between Donald Trump and and Kim Jong-un of North Korea. And I've been following this this week, and while the progressive community is cheering on the diplomatic efforts, you know, the hashtag resistance, like Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer is actually bashing Trump and the peace deal and making all kinds of vitriolic statements on the floor of Congress. Well, I think Chuck Schumer is making a mistake that many Democrats make. They feel that they can be a Republican Party light and prevail at the polls. But I think that's a prescription for disaster. As for Mr. Trump, I think what the press, at least the corporate media, has missed is that he's a kind of Mayberry Machiavellian. That is to say that he apparently has this devious scheme where he feels he can flip North Korea and basically have a so-called U.S. ally on the border with Russia, on the border with China, and provide leverage against South Korea, that is to say, with regard to trade deals with Kia, Hyundai, Samsung, and other major U.S. competitors, not to mention threaten uh, Japan, which has been a particular preoccupation of Mr. Trump going back to the 1980s. I don't think that's going to work, but I think that's the underlying impulse behind this trip to Singapore. 
Is that why you think that he did this, what, like video that had this kind of like promotional uh, flair for like what the U.S. could do for North Korea? Well, clearly, clearly. I, I think that his model is Nixon's trip to China in the early 1970s, where apparently that did work. That is to say, uh, Beijing did enlist in the anti-Soviet front which played a signal role in helping to bring down the Soviet Union a few decades later. I don't think that that scenario is going to be repeated with regard to North Korea and China, uh, but I think that that's the underlying impulse behind Mr. Trump's visit. So also this week, despite warnings from the U.N. and other humanitarian organizations, the U.S. and British-backed Saudi coalition attacked the port city of Hudaida in Yemen. And, you know, the organizations are saying that the already very dire humanitarian crisis there could get worse. It's a humanitarian catastrophe. In a sense, it's a slow-motion genocide. We should not forget as well that this catastrophe began under President Obama when he began sharing intelligence with the Saudis in particular as they began this campaign against the Houthis in Yemen. It has been escalated by Mr. Trump. And what's even more striking in that regard are the recent press reports that suggest that the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates might have been involved in illicit campaign donations to the Trump campaign. And in some ways, this may be the payoff uh, to the UAE and to the Saudis. And likewise, with regard to Mr. Trump's attempted overthrow of the Iranian nuclear deal, the fact that the Saudis and the UAE and, of course, the Israelis have been cheering that on also has to be seen in the context of these recent press reports about illicit campaign donations to the Trump campaign and perhaps even illicit donations, period, to the Trump family. And then also in that area of the world, more than 600 migrants, mainly from sub-Saharan Africa, were in the Mediterranean uh, since Sunday before Spain agreed to take them. Italy and Malta had decided that they would not take these migrants. Uh, They included children and pregnant women. And so I wanted to get your reaction to this and, you know, how it plays into our continuing conversation about how the migrant crisis has destabilized Europe, but also what caused this migrant crisis in terms of of what happened in Libya and and in Syria? Well, certainly Libya and Syria are the keys to that particular crisis, and certainly we should not forget the crisis on the Texas-Mexico border as we speak, which unfortunately is getting a lot of press attention with regard to separating children from their families. What's even more remarkable about this European crisis is the hypocrisy of France, which upbraided the Italian government for not taking in these people uh, fleeing to the shores of Italy. But at the same time, as the Italian government pointed out, uh, France has been in some ways even worse than the Italians with regard to turning back uh, migrants. And it's also striking, perhaps worthy of note, that the recently installed socialist government in Spain has decided apparently to take in at least some of these refugees and migrants, and hopefully that's a sign of a brighter future to come. Okay. Well, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. 
While the U.S. is still involved in the bombing of Yemen, that country remains on a list of predominantly Muslim countries included on Trump's travel ban. On June 12th, Muslims in D.C. held a community iftar, the traditional meal to break the daily fast during the holy holiday of Ramadan. Chantal James has more. Justice for Muslims Collective and a coalition of D.C. faith and social justice-based organizations hosted We Demand Justice, Iftar as an Act of Resistance, in Freedom Plaza as the sun set on Tuesday. Muslims and allies took this opportunity during the holy month of Ramadan both to draw on the Prophet Muhammad's imperatives to social justice and to visibly stand against state-sanctioned Islamophobia, including Trump's immigration ban. Never did I imagine that this trip would end with my torture, detention, and deportation. I suffered heartless and dehumanizing abuses from interrogators at the Customs and Border Protection and the U.S. Homeland Security. They detained me for 28 hours, hurled malicious accusations at me, deprived me of access to a lawyer, and contact with family and friends. The horror did not end there. They ordered me to strip naked with an industrial fan blasting at me. They deprived me of food for hours and later served me pork despite knowing that it is an affront to my religion. That was Maha Hilal of Justice for Muslims Collective reading a statement from human rights activist Jerome Aladdin Sakor Abba. As the crowd gathered, they were joined by the members of a march against the Philippines' President Duarte's persecutions of Muslims in the Philippines. Sarah Struggs came out in solidarity with those who were breaking their fast. I think it's a really important time for allies to show up with the Muslim community, our Muslim neighbors right now. Um, with everything that's been happening you know, locally and nationally, the Muslim ban and then the Supreme Court decision that will be coming down soon. And then just rampant Islamophobia that has been in existence for a really long time and has increased during this administration. So it's a, it's a chance to show solidarity. From Freedom Plaza in downtown D.C., this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. And another front of resistance, as the Poor People's Campaign concludes its fifth week of protests in D.C. and across the country, several members of the clergy were arrested, shackled, and jailed overnight this week after praying on the steps of the Supreme Court. And the campaign was invited to participate in a congressional hearing this week, chaired by Representative Elijah Cummings of Maryland and Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Ariana Hawk of Flint, Michigan, told the legislators that her community is still being harmed by a crisis of lead-contaminated water and high water bills. As many of you know, the water crisis in Flint, it made national news. That was four years ago. I stand before you here today because four years later, our kids are still suffering. We don't have clean water. Our government has turned their back on us, and we're left to just depend on each other. I can't afford to pay the highest water bills in the nation and on top of that provide clean water for my kids. I didn't poison them. My government poisoned them. The people in my community, we are all suffering. Our government let us down. You can't imagine being in my footsteps. I have children who have never had the experience of drinking from the tap, using regular water. They All they know is bottled water. All they know is not to go near the faucet, not to use that faucet. Also speaking during the hearing, the Reverend William Barber added that while Flint residents are saddled with these high water bills, 
The Nestle Corporation is pumping massive amounts of fresh water for pennies from Michigan. He also told the Democratic legislators gathered, some of whom touted the record of Barack Obama or pointed a finger at the Trump White House, that the issues of the Poor People's Campaign did not begin with the presidential election of 2016. Just having Trumpitis isn't enough. We got to understand that if Barack Obama had four more terms, we'd have still had 37 million people without health care and 140 million people if Hillary Clinton had been elected. It does not mean that his administration hasn't exacerbated. I'm not what I'm talking about. But we've got to look at the fact and own that we've had a 50-year push toward this. We have to own that Democrats and Republicans committed the sin of taking poverty out of the political discourse. And we got to the place where either folks were talking about middle class or military and not the poor. And we allowed folk to take the moral language and put it only on personal moral issues. And we did not continue to talk about civil rights as moral issues. And on the question of, of right now, for instance, I want to challenge us on one area. You know, everybody's talking about Russia, Russia, Russia. We don't know exactly what Russia, maybe y'all do because y'all been in some meeting, but we don't know exactly <laughs> what Russia did or did. But we know what voter suppression has done. Yeah. Mm. And yet that's the most under-talked about story, mm. even among our friends. The Poor People's Campaign has not allowed politicians to speak on its stage as it gears up for a mass rally on Saturday, June 23rd on the National Mall. In culture, media, and happenings, there will be a rally to support the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and to oppose any drilling there today, June 15th from 4 to 8 p.m. at 1201 15th Street in Northwest D.C. Check their Facebook page for more information. And the East River Jazz Festival concludes this weekend with Kaaba Soul Singer, Saturday, 3 p.m. at the Kenilworth Aquatic Gardens, and Marshall Key's Freedom Jazz Dance at the Rye Center happens on Sunday, June 17th at 3 p.m. EastRiverJazz.net has more information. And finally, the AFI Docs Documentary Festival is underway until Sunday, June 17th. I was able to check out the political thriller Dark Money about anonymous big donors directing American elections. This is part of the trailer for Dark Money. This was a whole new political attack. They send out all these mailings. They don't care if they lie. Nobody knows who they are. They call them dark money groups, and that's exactly what they are. Corporation funnels money to a dark money group. They send out postcards attacking the opponent. When that candidate gets elected, they support the agenda of the corporation. I don't know how to fight them. I can't pick up the phone and say, hey, what's your interest in candidate X? Because I don't know who they are. Dark Money, produced and directed by Kimberly Reed, opens in New York on July 13th and in Washington, D.C. on July 20th. And I look forward to checking out more of the dozens of documentaries scheduled for the AFI Docs Festival, including Bisbee 17, about the deportation of 1,200 immigrant miners who were left to die in the middle of the desert in Arizona in 1917. And Kinshasa Makambo about three young activists in the Congo demanding free and fair elections. And Mr. Soul about the 1960s public television show Soul and its producer Ellis Hazlip. The series shifted the gaze from what had become cliched images about inner city poverty and violence and turned more people on to the vibrancy of the black arts movement. 
You can get more information about the AFI Docs Festival at afi.com forward slash AFI Docs. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, for many Americans, the barbaric practice of ripping refugee children from their parents on the Mexico border is personal. Stay with us. Together! Yeah. Families belong together! <laughs> 
this year, Alma Jacinto and other parents who have been separated from their children were being identified by a yellow bracelet on their left wrist. Think about that. In solidarity with these parents and children who should never be forced to endure the trauma of family separation, we wear yellow wristbands on June 14th and stand up to say that families belong together. Make no mistake, this is a new policy whose sole aim is to terrorize these families and use their children as a way of deterring others from seeking refuge at our borders. This is unacceptable, and it must stop now. So we raise our fists. Hello, beautiful, loving, generous, compassionate people who know that America is better than what is happening, are willing to put your voices and your hearts and your feet and your actions to work to make sure that we have justice. I thank you so very much. So some of you know that I went to the Bureau of Prisons facility on Saturday where 206 immigrants had been transferred from the Texas border to SeaTac, Washington, just south of Seattle. I demanded on Friday, my staff and I demanded entry. We got entry on Saturday and we were able to visit with the 174 women. They are all almost all asylum seekers. They are, about 50% of them were mothers. They are from 16 different countries. They come from as far away as Eritrea and China, and the vast majority are from the four countries of Cuba, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. They are heartbroken, and we are heartbroken. And to stand with these women and hear their stories was devastating. And I promised them that I would continue to tell you about them. And I told them about you in the sense that I told them that there were people across this country who do not want this to happen, who know that this is wrong and are standing up for them. And I told them that we would do everything in our power to get them immediately released to get them credible fear hearings, and to reunite them with their children. So I was with them for about three hours, and I just want to tell you a little bit about what they told me so that you can hear it directly from me. Number one, they said that in a Federal Bureau of Prisons facility that this was the first time they felt like they were treated like human beings. And that's why I have a bill called the Dignity for Detained Immigrants Act that says we are not using private for-profit detention centers anymore. We need to get that back to the public. What they told me about the facilities that they were taken to, they called them nicknames like the Icebox and Dog Pound. 
icebox because they were so frigidly cold temperatures. And many of the women had crossed the Rio Grande, came across the river soaking wet, and then were put in this freezer with no blankets, no mattresses, and no clean drinking water. Just a sink with dirty chlorinated water. The dog pound was called that because they are kennels and cages. They look like a dog pound. That's the other facility that they were held in. And these women who came seeking asylum were put into rooms. Initially, they turned themselves in. They were with their children, and they were deceived. One woman said to me, I was deceived, and many of them have said this. They were told that their children were going to be taken for a bath. They were told that they were going to be taken out to have a photograph. They were told that they were going to go to court. And then when they went and they came back, their children were not there anymore. Not a one of these women had been able to even say goodbye to their children. And not a one of them knew where their children were. And they had been in detention, about half of them, for over a month. Some of them had been given slips of paper from ICE that had their name and a couple of their children, you know, and their children's name on that little tiny slip of paper. Except one woman said to me, these are not my children. The children that are listed here are not my children. When they realized that their kids had been taken away from them, forcibly removed from them, they literally were, some of them were sitting in the room right next door to where their children were. They could hear them screaming for them. And some of the children were as young as one year old. One year old, three years old, five years old, seven years old. These are kids who should be with their parents. And the stories of why these women came to the United States of America were everything that we have to make sure Americans across this country understand. These are not rapists, they're not murderers, they're not animals, they're not gang members. They are women seeking safety for their children. One woman who was from El Salvador, her oldest child had been shot and killed by gang members. Her second child had been shot and paralyzed by gangs. And her third child, the only child that was still alive and not paralyzed, she felt she had to bring to safety. So she did what every mother would do. And I am a mother, and I know we have mothers here and fathers here who understand that we will do anything it takes to bring our children to safety. That is what asylum seeking is. Is that right? We bring our children to safety. So there's something else that they told me as well. They told me that they were prosecuted in mass prosecutions in courts, 75, 100 people at a time. They said that they were taken into rooms, they were given some headphones so that they could have interpretation, but they were never allowed to say anything to the judges. Not a single one of them had had what we call a credible fear hearing, which is the beginning of the immigration process. alternatives to incarceration and let us be clear that this is incarceration it is not detention it is incarceration they are being held in jails they are being held in cages and we cannot allow this to continue and so these women are they are finally getting to see attorneys we took down names of all the women that we met with we got most of them, and we've connected them to legal uh, resources. Finally, the Bureau of Prisons is going to be allowing attorneys to come in, and we're going to try to preserve their ability.
I want to thank all the organizations that are here, and I want to say that you need to help us to continue to keep the movement alive, to continue to demand that these women are released immediately, that they are reunited with their families, and that they get credible funerals. You have been listening to Representative Pramila Jayapal, Democrat of Washington State, speaking at a rally on Capitol Hill Thursday, June 13th, to protest the practice of the Trump administration of separating immigrant children from their parents. Dozens of sister rallies were held across the country on Thursday, organized by NARAL, Pro-Choice America, and other organizations under the banner hashtag Families Belong Together. Before Representative Jayapal, you heard the MC and organizer Heidi Feldman and Ingrid Vaca of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. The website for the campaign is familiesbelong.org. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averam. When we come back, this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism. Stay with us. houses in preparation for the king and they line the sidewalks with every sort of shiny thing they will be surprised when they hear him say Take me to the island Take me to the afflicted ones Take me to the lonely ones That somehow lost their way Let them hear me say I am your friend Come to my table Rest here in my garden You will have a pardon Welcome back to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averam, and it's the third show of the month, so it's time for the F Word, our segment on fascism. On this segment, we talk about classic fascism, when the relationship between the state and corporation becomes indiscernible. We also talk about state violence and repression, particularly against people of color and in low-income communities, both here in the United States and abroad. And so this month's discussion of fascism is linked to our continuing coverage of the massacre, oppression, and occupation of the Palestinian people by the apartheid state of Israel. And for this segment, the focus is on the normalization of murders, brutality, and what are routine crimes against humanity. That same normalization happens here in the United States and among world leaders who continue to welcome Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu into their countries. 
And of course, Western corporate media, including the New York Times and NPR, cheerleads that normalization or actual erasure of Palestinian death and suffering. Joining me for this month's segment is Abba Solomon, author of The Speech and Its Context, Jacob Blostein's Speech, The Meaning of Palestine Partition to American Jews. His recent articles include Portman and Perlman and the Liberal Zionist Awakening and Identity as Pathology for the website MondoWise. Welcome to On the Ground, Abba. Thank you. And so I want to jump right in. In many ways, for me, that sickening uh, split screen from a month ago still exists. Uh, On one side, uh, dozens of unarmed protesters were being shot to death and hundreds were wounded. And on the other side, the U.S. was opening its embassy in Jerusalem with a lot of pomp and circumstance, smiles and laughter. And since then, the weekly slaughter of Palestinian people continues. So I see, you know, the Palestinian people living under a brutal and racist system of apartheid. I see them living under a totalitarian kind of neo-fascist regime. But at the same time, most Israelis and Americans in power, including not only the Trump people, but Democratic leaders like Schumer and Pelosi, are carrying on like it's okay, like everything's normal. So as a writer and as an American Jew, I want to know your reaction to this slaughter since March 30th and your thoughts about this mindset, you know, there and here in the U.S. that seems to find it acceptable for Palestinians to be murdered in cold blood or wounded like they have been. I've been thinking about this and really have been working on this for a while from the standpoint of American Jews. In other words, how do we think about this? How can this be consistent with our feeling good about ourselves and feeling like we're ethical or that our identity isn't damaged in this kind of situation where this is being done by the Israeli government on an ongoing weekly basis. I mean, there's other crimes, but this is a new crime, the uh, firing at demonstrators along the Gaza barrier. And it really has to do with how Israeli identity and existence was formed, and that was as a separate colony in Palestine, where Palestinians were kind of part of the landscape to deal with, but were not central to the story of creating this new Jewish society and new Jewish country. And so Palestinians became part of the landscape to manipulate and to deal with not quite as uh, central or as human as the Jewish people who were creating their new land. So the treatment now is really an outgrowth of a hundred years of psychology of colonialism and of building this ideal society that had inconvenient people in the way. And you've got to see the inevitability or the... um, how things came to this point by the the vices of the creation of the state, which was in the last, really, the 100 years ago, created in the last moments of the uh, colonial philosophy from Europe. Mm-hmm. The brutality... This the ball for a declaration, you mean. Exactly, yes. Mm-hmm. yes. And the uh, setting up of a, really, a save what was intended as a safety valve for surplus or unwanted Jews in Eastern Europe. And so what you have is a 
generations now of Israelis who've been brought up in this ideology and to an extent linguistically and culturally isolated from other Palestinians, other, you know, from non-Jewish Palestinians, where they think of them as obstacles and as persecutors. And you have gener, this is a, you know, you have, you have generations of dealing with what is considered the Arab problem. This is simply a national problem of the Israelis. And so there's very little sympathy at this point to the humanity from the Israeli side of the upwards of two million people living in Gaza uh, in uh, extraordinary conditions, extraordinarily difficult conditions in terms of water supply, electricity, uh, anything that makes modern life. So... I, I suppose what you're talking about extends to the training of the IDF soldiers. So how these young men and women can look through their scopes and calmly just pick off, you know, as snipers, pick off people, you know, yards and yards away. You know, these people are so far away from them in terms of posing any type of threat and just shoot them. Some of the formation of the state and maintenance of the state extends to how these soldiers are trained, right? Yes, certainly in their education and then in their training, but it's, it's societal. It's just when you're in schools, you're in Hebrew-speaking schools, so you aren't associating with Arabic-speaking fellow citizens of Israel. You are brought up with an ideology of siege. And I don't know if it's that unusual, this brutality, any, uh, if you look at perhaps like an American police force, once right. you can target somebody as outside of consideration, as a human, you can get very casual about how you treat them and what weaponry you deploy against them. But the important thing is that you don't relate to them as somebody like your brother or your uncle or your sister. You don't see them in the same way. You don't draw those parallels to their humanity. But that makes me think of, uh, first of all, how soldiers are trained. And then secondly, here in... D.C. and a, a number of min- municipalities, Jewish Voice for Peace, has a campaign to basically end this practice of police officers from the United States going to Israel to train, simply because and because what they're saying is that they're training with a, a force that is involved in racial profiling, assassinations, just the the type of treatment of people that we say we don't want here in the United States. So why would you go train in Israel? So. And there is a, a synergy now between the Israeli government and the U.S. government and the Protestant evangelicals. The largest Zionist organization in the United States now is the evangelical organization Christians United for Israel, KUFI, right. UFI, J- Pastor J- James Hagee's uh, organization, and the American white nationalist Richard Spencer has called himself a white Zionist, that is, a Zionist for U.S. whites. So there is a, a real uh, resonance now between the right wing in America and Israel that is really overtaking Jewish American advocacy for Israel, which is really declining. There's many more American Jews who are starting to, and this is among younger Jewish Americans, starting really to question Israel, the existence of Israel itself, as being central to their Jewish identity.
A piece that you wrote reveals something that I actually didn't know. So last November, Mort Klein of the Zionist Organization of America welcomed former Trump senior advisor and white nationalist Steve Bannon to speak at the organization's New York City gala. And then also former White House staffer Sebastian Gorka was there. He's suspected of Nazi sympathies. And, you know, he's all, he was also a guest. And then outside this gala in Midtown Manhattan, the Jewish group, if not now, protested. And I, there were interviews with, uh, you know, people basically saying that, you know, they don't want Nazi collaborators uh, mixing that up with Judaism in any kind of way. So there's such a, a variety of different mindsets toward Israel and also uh, what you were just getting ready to talk about, the younger generation pulling away from a lot of these, these other organizations. Yes. Well, the problem is that Israel is a country, and the countries are a nation. Nations have interests. It used to be thought around the world, people would, uh, Jews would say to themselves, it improves the safety of Jews everywhere to have this country, which is the Jewish state. The problem is that Israel has a interest in its own self-preservation and its own geopolitical alliances. And as far as they're concerned, the primary focus with their relations with foreign countries is not how they treat Jews, or how, whether they're sympathetic to Jews, or just, or um, respectful of, of rights, minority rights. It's whether they're advocates for the state of Israel. So there isn't a single uh, interest between Jews around the world, diaspora Jews, who are citizens of their countries and are you know part of a part of America or France or anywhere else. And the state of Israel, which has its own focus and is perfectly willing to ally with like neo-Nazi governments or fascist governments like the new Hungarian government, which emphasizes like racial purity and Hungarian nationalism at the expense of like Muslim immigrants or Jewish Jewish citizens of of Hungary. Wow. Yeah, because at the end of that piece, you you said something I thought was really profound. You said the question is whether the logic and spirit of support for the Jewish state must lead to alliance with other ethnic nationalisms contradictory to the interests of Jews outside of Israel. So I was I was actually curious about how this collaboration between Zionists and Nazis is connected to the current crisis in mindset. But I think you already you already talked about that. Well, there's a saying in sociology that uh, American Jews earn like Episcopalians but vote like Puerto Ricans. It takes takes advantage of a lot of stereotypes. But in terms of uh, there was a disproportionate Jewish participation like in the labor and civil rights movements, and uh, there's now an overwhelming sentiment, anti-Trump sentiment among American Jews. And so there really, for me, there's a real crisis of how this is going to work out. Because it's very painful to for people to abandon or speak badly about people within their own ethnic group. Mm-hmm. And it is difficult to speak out against Israel because of the taboo against speaking against your own people. Oh, right. Yeah, just I think that many people in the African-American community uh, still cannot bring themselves to criticize Obama and his policies. And if you 
bring it up even now at a family gathering. That just blows up the whole thing, you know. So, so either you, you understand history and you understand facts, or you don't. And if you understand them and you still uh, refuse to justify yourself with that, then I don't know what else you know. I don't know what else a journalist could do other than give the facts. <laughs> so, but I have to go to a brief break right now. This is Esther Averam on On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm in conversation with author Abba Solomon for this month's episode of The F Word. And before the break, Abba, we were talking about facts and history and the erasure of history. So I'm curious about whether in Israel people are educated about the Nakba. It's because of the Nakba that we've had this series of demonstrations in Gaza to commemorate the 70th anniversary of the Nakba or the catastrophe when upwards of 750,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from Palestine and removed from their homes and thousands were murdered by Israeli militia. It's considered a propaganda point. In other words, if you're an Israeli and you speak about the Nakba, you're, the, the shorthand is you're called a leftist. That's now anybody who's concerned about non-Jewish human rights, uh, they're called leftists. They're called unreal, unrealistic and susceptible, or they believe Palestinian propaganda. So, in other words, there's legislation in Israeli law that any public organization, any any like arts organization or educational organization that mentions the Nakba is not allowed to receive any funding. And this is helped by the fact that Israel is defined, the major society, the society is defined by being Jewish. So that you can just simply classify anything relating to Palestinian human rights as anti-Israeli propaganda. And it's very bitter. I mean, the psychology of Israeli Jews in the main and the way they're voting is very different than Jewish Americans. But making this break public is going to be very painful. I, I don't know if all the groups would be be actually making that break. You you wrote last month the the major American Jewish organizations now anchored in Israel advocacy are paralyzed from action. And I, I think you meant action on Gaza. 
in a statement deaf to the sentiments of most Americans, if not their donors, the American Jewish Committee weighed in on Gaza. The AJC stands, quote, shoulder to shoulder with Israel, end quote, and praises the Trump administration. Quote, we thank Washington for this moral clarity when too many others suffer from moral fog, end quote. Wow. <laughs> so it was after that terrible day of uh, 60 people shot at once. Right. So I see organizations like this are pretty far away from coming to any type of change. I mean, but, you know, you mentioned legislation in Israel and, and how it creates this erasure of history. And I want to kind of switch to legislation and Trump appointees and things happening here. Uh, in recent weeks, we talked about this legislation proposed by Ben Cardin of Maryland that would basically make it illegal to participate in many aspects of the BDS boycott divestment sanctions campaign against Israel. And since then, I've learned about another piece of legislation. The ACLU released a warning, the latest attack on free speech in the Israel-Palestine debate. And it said members of Congress last month introduced the Anti-Semitism Awareness Act. And the bill purports to address a real problem. And this is a statement from, the, I think, the, the, the ACLU. According to the FBI, incidents of hate crimes motivated by anti-Jewish bias have significantly increased in recent years. But then it goes on, but anti-Semitic harassment is already illegal under federal law. The new bill does not change that fact, but its overbreath makes it likely that it will instead silence criticism of Israel that is protected by the First Amendment. So that's kind of where we are right now. And in addition, we have some Trump appointees that are very problematic. But why don't you talk about this legislation here that is you know, connected to the Israel and Palestine? This legislation is an extraordinary idea. It's the idea that I, as a Jewish American, should be protected from advocacy of the idea that uh, Israel is an unjust construction, that my identity and my part of my entitlement as an American citizen is not to have, not to be persecuted on the basis of my religion, and that my religion and religious identity extends to the preservation of the Israeli state. That hmm. being a Jew is part of my Jewish identity is as someone who has a country in the Middle East with certain borders, undetermined borders, and with a Jewish sovereignty. And it's just a, uh, on the basis of the First Amendment, it won't, it, it can't pass. Well, I mean, it can't, it can pass perhaps, but it's dubious that it could stand court challenge. But that's all part of the idea that, that Israel being challenged is anti-Semitic. Yeah, can you talk about that a little? Here in D.C., there is a very, I guess, I, I'd say vocal and prominent contingent of people who believe that. Yes, even to the extent that if somebody is a Palestinian-American telling their story, that that is anti-Semitic. Right, right. You know, we had um, a young man, um, very, very heartbreaking story. I mean, it was at the same time that James Comey was doing his 
testimony that was riveting the nation supposedly last year we actually covered another congressional hearing where a young man spoke at another congressional hearing and I guess he grew up in Gaza and he just seeing his friends die and seeing people murdered right next to him just it was the most uh, horrific one of the most horrific and heartbreaking testimonies I ever heard from anybody so you've seen instances where people, where Palestinians are just telling their story, and that's considered anti-Semitic. Yes, there is a concerted effort by, uh, like the American Jewish Committee and various, you know, the mainstream organizations, which didn't used to be as Zionist as they are now, by the way. This is really the last 20 years, well, last 30 years, a real uh, effort to make sure to counter any time there's an announcement of a presentation, for instance, from a Palestinian group or Palestinian speakers, to see if they can't get it canceled, or to say that there has to be balance at that moment. Um, yeah. And a lot of it is framed with the idea that this is not against Israel or against the basically the Jewish regime that is running, controlling all of Palestine, but that this is endangering or persecuting Jewish Americans just by the existence of this speech or of this presentation. It's, it's just extraordinary. It can't, like I say, and like the ACLU says, it, it really can't be considered legitimate under the American system of free speech. Uh, finally, I want to talk about the BDS movement. Um, after covering the slaughter for the past more than two months and really, I guess before then, just kind of being conscious of the occupation, the the brutality uh, in Palestine and in, in Gaza and in Israel, we have really tried to cover more about the boycott divestment sanctions movement. And a lot of people feel that that is the only real path right now because you you have Nikki Haley making her really hideous statements at the UN um, vetoing any attempt to even investigate this these murders uh, you have European leaders still welcoming you know Netanyahu and recently on visits to various countries so there seems to be this real disconnect between these world leaders in quotation marks and and the people like the Argentinian football team that decided not to go to Israel and Lionel Messi the soccer star posting a really tremendous tweet about how he was a UNICEF ambassador and how could he go somewhere where you know Palestinian children were being murdered so there seems this, this big disconnect between what is called civil society and, I guess, the people and world leaders that are just continuing to cover for Israel and cover for these crimes against humanity? I don't know. I mean, there's no alternative other than to like, keep on keeping on. Certainly in the last 10 years, I've seen a big change in how much more we hear about the Palestinian side, basically. Mm -hmm. where the Jewish state controls the lives of millions of people who do not vote for the policies of that government. Essentially, right. you have an equal, between the, the river and the sea, you have an equal number of Jews and, Palest and uh, Palestinians, Palestinian Christians and Muslims. Mm -hmm. But unless you are an Israeli citizen and you don't vote for the government that controls the entire area, 
And as you say, you know, in 1947, 48, 49, 750 to 800,000 Arabs were evicted simply because they weren't Jewish. So the claim or the idea that the U.S. is supporting a democracy in Israel relies on a democracy where the voters were selected by Jewish militia in terms of who had to move, who had to leave their homes. Unfortunately, I know I could we could talk a lot more about this, but I'm grateful for the, for what we have been able to cover because I've run out of time now. I've been speaking with Abba Solomon, author of the speech and its context, Jacob Blostein's speech, the meaning of Palestine partition to American Jews. His recent pieces include Portman and Perlman and the liberal Zionist awakening and identity as pathology for the website Manda Wise. Thank you for joining me today, Abba. I've been very glad to be here. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank again my guests, Gerald Horn and Abba Solomon. And thanks to Chantel James and Lydia Curtis for their reporting. The music we played this hour included End of the Line by Daft Punk and Fotech, Take Me to the Alley by Gregory Porter, and Animus Fox by The Glitch Mob. Our theme song is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. This is On the Ground, voices of resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can always reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. Until next week, keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>